Welcome to the CBIA BizCast. I'm your host, Allie Warshawski, and today on our podcast, we are speaking with Dr. Charles Lee of Jackson Labs in Farmington. They have been extremely busy during the pandemic, as you can imagine, and now they're helping determine which cases in Connecticut are which different variant. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Lee to the podcast. Hi, Allie. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you on and and we really appreciate you taking some time, which um, is probably a very busy time right now as those COVID rates have started to go up. Um, Let's go back though to March of 2020. How has your role changed since the coronavirus was found in the United States? Yeah, so as for everybody, I'm sure everybody has their stories of where they were and what they were doing as the pandemic started. Uh, For us, uh, it started really with the fact that uh, early on in the pandemic, we realized that uh, this virus was sweeping through the globe. And uh, we also realized that the recommendations early on were that uh, anyone that had a suspicion of having COVID-19 infection, uh, they were to uh, get the samples sent to the CDC lab in Atlanta. Uh, And it's pretty obvious that with something like this, it's um, uh, sent the samples to one lab, even the CDC, it's just not going to be enough. And so um, we reached out actually to the CDC, both the federal state level CDCs, and, um, you know, there was a protocol that they were following. And so finally, we decided to go straight to the governor, uh, Governor Lamont, and we asked him, look, we have a um, clinical diagnostic lab at the Jackson Laboratory here in Connecticut, and uh, we could easily uh, uh, set up the COVID-19 test. Um, and do you, would you like a, our help on this? And so uh, Governor Lamont, it was amazing to see him just, he knew what he wanted, and he said, absolutely, we need all the help we can get. And so we started uh, implementing, we, we started preparing for the test and it took us about three weeks to get us all up and running. Uh, that's, I, very few uh, clinical diagnostic tests have been set up in three weeks from start uh, to implementation. And on March 23rd, uh, we started to launch the test at about 50 tests per day. Uh, and at the peak of the pandemic, uh, we had ramped up the services so that we're actually running about 10,000 tests per day for the state of Connecticut. So it's a huge increase. Um, And uh, it's been, um, you know, it's been really satisfying to be able to be at service for the citizens of Connecticut like this. And you said it's very rare for it to take three weeks to set something like that up. Is there anything in your career, do you remember, that was anything similar to this, where there was a very um, quick turnaround? There's there's nothing. In fact, before this, um, before coming to Connecticut, uh, I was uh, at Brigham Women's Hospital um, as a uh, laboratory, certified laboratory diagnostician. Um, so I, and uh, it's a Brigham Women's Hospital is a Harvard affiliated hospital. Uh, so I've been among the best. I've seen the best at, uh, at action and there is nothing that compares to that. This, this was all hands on deck and I'm so very proud of the, the people that put this together uh, right here in the state. 
And when you said you were processing around 10,000 tests, um, what did that mean for employees? Like how many do you need to process that many? Are they working all hours of the day and night? Yes, so um, initially, of course, we started off with uh, one shift of eight to nine hours um, and probably about 17 people that were working in the CLIA lab. And as we ramped up, there were two levels uh, of ramping up. So one is, of course, they're uh, increasing, as you are uh, implying, the number of people working in the CLIA lab. So at the, at the peak, we actually went from about 17 individuals in the CLIA lab to about 78 people. Um, and so you can imagine uh, just the aspects of trying to hire people and train them uh, in, in this process is uh, Herculean effort in itself. Uh, but then on top of it, that's not enough. You actually have to implement a lot of automation, uh, robots, uh, and um, uh, so, uh, and even having extra tissue culture hoods, etc. We ended up uh, purchasing uh, well over $11 million additional equipment uh, to, to get this uh, automated to the level that we could do 10,000 tests per day. So both of those in combination, the increase of the staff and training them, um, as well as implementing, purchasing and implementing this automation um, was what made that all possible. Wow, yeah, that is a lot to be going on during a pandemic where uh, no one really knows what's going on, what's going to happen next. And even though a lot of us, uh, you know, we keep saying, oh, during the pandemic, unfortunately, we're still in it. And you guys know that better than anyone, because now you're helping the state determine how many positive tests are which type of variant. How does this happen? And I believe I read it's genomic sequencing. Hopefully I've pronounced that right. But yeah. for us non-scientists, what exactly is that? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. And actually, um, so the way the testing works is um, uh, the actual uh, clinical diagnostic test is called a PCR test. So um, what the PCR test actually does is it identify it, we've identified, um, the test identifies three regions on the viral genome, which it targets and then it amplifies or it tries to amplify. So for example, if you have a swab uh, that's uh, taken for an individual, You're, you want to know if they have uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. That swab is then uh, mixed with the solution. The if there's any virus that goes into the solution, and then you're trying to, you're asking question, is there any virus in that solution? And the way you identify it is you just, um, you target three regions of the viral genome and you see if you can amplify it. So if the virus is there, there will, those three target regions will amplify and you'll get uh, uh, increased, for, we call a fluorescence, a signal, an increased signal. If the virus is not there, we won't get any increase in the signal and it's a negative result. So, um, so that's how you do a, a typical uh, PCR-based uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 test. Now, um, in some cases, um, well, so when you want to actually do the, uh, to determine what the variant is, you actually have to understand not is just is the sequence, it, the sequence is present, those three areas you're targeting, but you actually need to understand what is the actual sequence of the entire virus. And then what changes are there along that sequence 
compared to the original strain of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So you're absolutely right. It's it's we we essentially sequence uh, the the entire length of the virus is about thirty thousand bases. So we sequence that entire thirty thousand bases, and then we look for what are the changes along all thirty thousand bases. Uh, and of course that by doing that by hand is almost impossible. <laughs> we have computers that help us do that quickly. And, um, and then based on what changes are in that uh, virus that we are sequencing, we try to identify a signature that tells us, is this the alpha variant? Is this a beta variant, uh, delta variant, et cetera? Um, and so that's what we do here at the Jackson Laboratory. So in addition to the PCR testing, to determine whether the sample has virus or not, uh, we can we do uh, follow-up sequencing uh, where we tell you what's the exact variant. I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so it's obviously you said done by a computer. And um, I guess my I think most people would assume like what you said, you get tested and then it's positive. And if it's positive, it goes right to this um, computer or robotics that analyzes the way it's made up. It notices that it's made up the way the Delta variant is typically made up, so you therefore have the Delta variant. Um, when did it I, labs decide to start, or I guess not, you probably didn't decide, but maybe um, the CDC to run tests to see if there was any genetic changes or mutations, I should say, to the virus. Um, you know, because for so long it was just COVID. How did they even identify that there was a different type of variant? Right. So. Ali, let's just uh, make sure uh, I've got the, um, the concept across that the actual DNA sequencing is actually another test above and beyond the PCR test. So once yes. you've done the PCR test, you actually have to run the DNA sequence mm -hmm. and then analyze the sequence. So, um, okay. but, but then to your, to your question now as to when did we realize we needed to do this, I mean, we needed. We realized that we needed to do this early on because uh, biologists, uh, infectious disease experts, they know that viruses mutate; they evolve, mm -hmm. and they know that as viruses evolve, have different properties in terms of infectivity, uh, in terms of severity of the disease. Uh, so early on, it was really important to uh, start uh, the sequencing now. Um, um, this actually may be a good time to show you one of these uh, slides that I prepared. In, in this particular slide, uh, it actually shows, if you look at uh, the slide that says SARS-CoV-2 genome sequencing, you can see on the early on during the pandemic, uh, the different colors of waves that you see there is actually uh, the different variants uh, based on sequencing data. Um, so that just that we were seek there was a, a level of sequencing that was happening early on in the pandemic, and for the most part, you can see the blue wave is the the alpha that represents the alpha variant, um, and so that was a predominant variant early on in the pandemic. Uh, then you can uh, on the right side later on in the pandemic, including up to now. Uh, the vast majority of the viruses that are being sequenced, uh, sequenced are what we refer to as a Delta variant. Uh, and there's a lot, it's, it's really taken over uh, all of the, the, uh, the, sequ the 
the very the viruses that are being sequenced right now. And so uh, being able to identify these waves uh, and then watch how uh, the patients that are infected by each of these different variants respond to treatments or, or uh, the, how many of them are being hospitalized, how many of them have been vaccinated versus not vaccinated. I mean, this is all important information. And uh, without knowing what that variant is, it's hard for us to prepare uh, for next steps. Interesting. So this has been done with something like the flu before. This is not new to the co to COVID nineteen. Um, you've looked at this when other viruses, um, again commonly the flu, have gone around uh, every winter. But that's that's exactly right. So uh, every winter, um, primarily it's the CDC that actually collects uh, a portion of the samples, sequences, does the genome sequencing finds out where mutations are, what are the different variants that we're seeing. And this actually helps them to, uh, on one hand, it will, uh, uh, through epidemiological studies, it will help them understand why a certain, uh, the, the flu vaccine that they used was either very effective or not as effective uh, it, in a given season, prepare them for the next uh, season. Uh, and so the more information on this, the better. And traditionally, the CDC uh, has been doing this. Uh, with SARS-CoV-2, because of uh, the, uh, the nature of the disease, uh, it's sort of, again, all hands on deck. Let's all contribute uh, as we can uh, to get as much information possible to, um, to combat this uh, pandemic. And speaking of information, you know, what are you finding at Jackson Labs? I think as of right now, um, which is the 13th when we're speaking, there's been several of the new variant found in the state, but um, not too, too many yet. Of course, by the time this is released, that could change. But um, from what you guys have been studying, what are you finding? Is it still predominantly the first coronavirus um, mutation that's here, the Delta, the Omicron, what, what are you guys seeing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, what we've been seeing is, um, so to give, over the past, um, over the past month, uh, we have had 300 positives, 302 positives uh, that have come through our clinical diagnostic lab. And uh, we've actually sequenced each and every one of those. Uh, we're, um, as, just to put things in perspective, Ali, um, the United States is aiming to see approximately 5% of all variants uh, on average, uh, just to give us a landscape, because it's, it's a lot to do every one of them. Um, the, the state of Connecticut has actually gone further than that, and the state of Connecticut's goal is to actually sequence about 20 to 25% of all the variants in the state. Um, and uh, we, the, the, the places that are contributing to our uh, Quest Diagnostics is doing some sequencing. Uh, uh, Nate Grauber at uh, Yale University is doing a considerable mm -hmm. amount. Of course, the Connecticut State Lab and the Newton Laboratory. Uh, and we've made it a policy here at Jacks. We're actually just sequencing all of the variants, uh, all the positives that we get. And um, so what we're seeing up to this point is that everything, pretty much 99% of all the variants we're sequencing are the Delta variant. Um, now, having said that, um, 
uh, I did not prepare this for the the uh, this podcast, but uh, we now actually have uh, a suspicious Omicron variant that we believe we've identified. Uh, we're trying to confirm it now. Um, so, um, and and your listeners may be um, uh, asking, how how do you determine um, a suspicious variant? And the reason why is, remember, I told you earlier on that. Um, uh, for the PCR assay, you actually, we actually target three regions of the genome. And what happens is two or th usually all three of those regions, if there's a virus, they all go up and you get an increased fluorescent signal. Um, and sometimes one of the regions uh, might not work, but for the most part, all three of those regions go up uh, if there's a virus present. Now, uh, interestingly, there, uh, one of the mutations in the Omicron variant actually prevents one of those regions in the PCR assay to go up properly. And so uh, it's, uh, it gives us an indication when we have the other two going up, but not that third, that something that this may be a potential Omicron variant. And so now we're doing the whole genome sequencing and that'll tell us conclusively if that's the case. Okay, so what you're saying is um, from what you guys have been searching through and analyzing, the, your specific lab hasn't had any, but you might think you now have one that you are analyzing that is of that variant because the ones that have come out throughout Connecticut have been um, through other labs, correct? Is that what you're that's, saying? That, that's sure. correct. Yeah. And in, okay. my understanding is actually it's primarily the state lab that has been picking mm -hmm. up the current variants. We have last that I saw uh, 11 confirmed cases of Omicron in the state. Um, this is something I've been wondering ever since I started testing for Delta, but how do you know, or how, how do you guys um, determine which ones go through that uh, testing to see if it's a variant? Because, you know, you get swabbed, you usually you're just told that you're positive. Um, you know, how are you, uh, I say lucky one, but really you're unlucky if you catch COVID to then be contacted and, be, and them tell you, oh, also we found out that you are the lucky carrier of this variant. You know, how is it determined whose test gets yeah. further analyzed? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, it, for most of the labs uh, in the country, uh, they would randomly just identify you know, uh, 5%, right? So if for every 100 positives, they might just randomly, they'll randomly choose about five of those, run them through the sequencer and see what the variant is. Uh, here in the state of Connecticut, uh, as I was saying, the, we're trying to uh, do better than the US average. And so we're, as a state, we're actually, uh, to collectively trying trying to sequence uh, between 20 and 25 percent of all the positives, uh, so we have a more thorough understanding of the variants. At the Jackson Laboratory, we're we're just decided we're going to sequence all the positives. So anything that comes to us uh, might ask, well, what are the samples that come to the Jackson Laboratory? Right now, we're primarily doing. Uh, the, te the, the tests that are coming in from the nursing homes, about 120 nursing homes across the state, uh, long uh, extended uh, um, uh, uh, living uh, uh, mm -hmm. places. Uh, and so though, among those samples, any positive that we get, sequencing them. So, okay, we, interesting. so we sequence them all. 
Are you obligated to tell someone if if they um, their variant is different? Uh, you know, or just you guys do that um, just as a courtesy? So all of the information that we get actually goes to the state um, okay. directly, and it's part of their surveillance program. So gotcha. When, when Yale does their sequencing, Quest does the sequencing. We don't actually give that information back to, you know, uh, so the state will collect that information and then determine next steps. That's coordinated. So interesting. Oh, thank you for explaining that. I think a lot of people were wondering, like, you know, if my test, how do I know if I'm one of the tests that gets the further research? So I just want to clarify, because I think your audio might have gotten cut off a little bit in the beginning. This The national standard is 10%, Connecticut's is 20 uh, the national average is five percent. Average five percent. Uh, okay, wow. 5%. So we're we're way above um, what is required in Connecticut, which is always nice to see. Well, you know, actually, um, Ellie, if 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 you if I may, uh, let me just also show you this one slide because I think it's important for us not to rest on our laurels, but just to be reminded of how good we're doing as a state. So in this particular, you can actually see that. Um, on the bottom, you can see the number of uh, cases of COVID throughout the U.S. Uh, and the different waves uh, that are happening. And on the top uh, uh, graph, you can actually see what we're seeing uh, in Connecticut. And you can see that the peaks are actually much more lower than the overall U.S. And I think that's a credit to um, uh, the, what we're implementing in the state. So being very aggressive with the masking, uh, vaccinations, uh, testing, et cetera. So um, I, I wanted to put this up here just so that we can feel very proud uh, of what we're doing and, and uh, hopefully feel safe about uh, the measures that are being placed for our state. Thank you for sharing that. I do hope it helps ease some worries. It's been a a weird time as those rates uh, climb because of winter. And you know, um, you guys have another location in Bar Harbor, Maine. Uh, there's a lot of other research you're doing surrounding COVID and testing and sequencing. Can you tell us a little bit about some other projects that Jackson Labs is working on? Yeah, so um, we are, um, uh, we actually have additional sequencing of the virus, first of all, that's happening for the residents of uh, Maine. Uh, that's actually being led by one of our investigators, Ryan Tui, um, and he's working very closely with the main CDC on collecting the information and 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 uh, taking next that. But in addition to that, uh, you know, not, I'm not sure if everyone will realize that uh, the Jackson Laboratory um, has been founded on more than 90 years of using the mouse as a model for human disease, um, and we're very proud of, uh, you know, being really the the forefront uh, investigators in this area. And so capitalizing on that uh, strength, uh, just give you some examples. Um, so Kat Lutz and her team have actually, right from the beginning of the pandemic, they've actually been um, the group that has been growing uh, uh, specialized genetically engineered mice that are uh, specifically made to be used for vaccine research um, to, to see the efficacy of vaccine research. So uh, their team is constantly busy at providing hundreds of investigators in, I believe, 28 different countries in the world uh, for uh, that kind of research. In addition, one of the things that we, real, uh, we all realize is the same variant uh, 
of uh, uh, SARS-2, if it infects five different people, those five different individuals, let's say even if they were the same age, they can react, respond quite differently. Someone could be hospitalized, another person could get the sniffles, another person may not feel anything at all. And what's that, what, what is causing that variability? And so um, we believe, a lot of uh, geneticists around the world actually believe that part of the answer lies in our, the differences in our genetics from one person to another. And what differences may protect one individual and not another individual from getting a severe infection, um, a, a, a severe yeah, infection. So uh, we try to model that in mice. So the same thing, we take the specialized mice that I talked about earlier, and we, uh, we create those mice in different genetic backgrounds, and then infect those mice with uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And sure enough, we actually do already the preliminary data suggests shows some of the mice succumb to the disease very quickly. Others have very little effect. Uh, and that could be a really powerful tool for trying to dissect what parts of the human genome uh, could be uh, leading to increased susceptibility or, 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 or um, our response to, to the virus. That's been led by Nadia Rosenthal and, and her team there. It'll be so interesting to learn more about that because I know that seems to be one of the most confusing things about this virus is how different, how severe someone in the same family member uh, could have it than you do. So be look, we will look forward to talking to you more about that in the future when you guys release some findings. My last question for you is, you know, how is the research being done um, by Jackson Labs, helping to better understand this virus and then eventually curb the infection rates. You kind of just touched on it right there by the research of better understanding why it affects some people differently. But are there any other ways that you feel the lab is really helping um, to try to uh, curb this and end this eventually? Yeah, so um, it's um, so our investigators, of course, when the pandemic started, uh, with their different specialties and their different knowledge bases, many uh, of our investigators uh, turned their attention to the, the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. What could they do to help us further understand more about the virus and the pandemic? Uh, and so we actually have now several projects that have started that have uh, actually uh, gained uh, uh, funding from the NIH to pursue them. Uh, and uh, just to give you an example, one of those projects is led by Beria Unutmas, who is an immunologist at, uh, in, in the Connecticut campus here. And he's working very closely with the Dean of the Medical School at UConn Health, uh, Bruce Leong. And they actually are looking at about 300 healthcare workers that uh, take look, looking at um, their antibody levels um, through um, getting the first shot, second shot, the booster, and how well does a sample of their blood uh, neutralize the SARS-CoV-2. Um, and one of the things they found consistent with other studies that are going around in the, in the world is that indeed uh, when uh, between three to six months, the amount of antibodies that we have, even after the second shot, uh, really wanes quite a bit uh, across the majority of these individuals. 
And so we know that uh, fighting the infection is not just about antibodies, it's also about the T cell repertoire and how they function, but at least one component, there's evidence that suggests uh, from patients, health, actually it's healthcare workers here in, in the greater Hartford area uh, that, that have donated their blood for this research, basically shows that yes, between three to six months after your second shot, your, the number of ant functional the antibodies that can neutralize this uh, virus drops considerably. And so it reinforces the idea that uh, the, the booster shots are really going to be important in our the next phase of this fight against pandemic. Yes, it's very timely that this will be released as many people are being urged to get their booster shot. Maybe hearing that will um, help them make their decision. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the BizCast. Is there anything you think we should know about what's being done at Jackson Labs that you didn't have a chance to mention or about the coronavirus itself? I mean, one, as, as I mentioned, we are... Um, uh, we and researchers uh, and medical staff around the world have been sequencing the virus uh, from quite early on. And one of the reasons uh, we can, we'd like to do this is we wanna understand the evolution uh, of the virus itself. So um, this is actually a slide which uh, you might find interesting. So it, on the left side here is sort of when the pandemic started. Uh, I don't know if, can you see this? and. Um, you can see the different variants that have arisen uh, throughout the globe. On the very top, uh, there is, you can see this is a Delta variant, right? And that's the variant that's predominantly across uh, in, in people that are being infected right now uh, throughout the world. Um, now, we always thought that if a new variant arose, um, which uh, was... Um, the, the Omicron variant, we always thought that, in fact, it may be evolving from the Delta variant because the Delta variant is all over the place. And there's um, more chances for it to evolve and, and create a new variant. Turns out that the sequencing data doesn't agree with that hypothesis. You can see the Omicron, uh, the Omicron uh, variant down here. It's about two-thirds of the way down in red. And the sequencing of that Omicron uh, variant actually suggests that it, uh, it actually originated quite earlier on in the pandemic, did not come from the Delta variant. Um, and so th there's some speculations that it could have been uh, a variant in, for example, a person with a very long-term infection. And it, during that infection, it changed and it changed and changed, accumulated all these mutations to the point where it now became something that could spread very rapidly. Um, so having that kind of information alone uh, is, uh, is really important. That's why scientists really feel that uh, gathering as much data as possible so we're the most informed is the best way to fight this pandemic. That's very interesting to learn because I think we all assume that every variant, the mutation comes from the last one. And you're right, like this graph looking at it looks like, um, well, as you said, it didn't. So yep. interesting to know. Well, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know I learned a lot. I'm hoping our listeners did as well. And thank you for listening to this week's BizCast. You can listen and subscribe to our other BizCasts on Apple or YouTube, SoundCloud as well. And for more episodes, you can visit CBIA.com. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Thank you very much, Ellie. Appreciate it.